Hello and welcome back to February's Westmead ED Journal Club podcast. Today we have three fascinating papers to show you. We're talking about cardiology in this session and we have two cardiology fellows with us, Aisha and Samia, who will be presenting uh, two of the respective papers. We might go around and introduce ourselves once again and then we'll kick off. Hey, I'm Caroline. I'm back for another month. Hi, I'm Aisha. I'm one of the uh, cardiology research fellows. Hey, I'm Samia. I'm one of the other cardiology fellows. I'm Samoda. It's nice to have you listening to us again. As always, I'm Kit and I'll host the podcast today. Hi, I'm Shreyas and I'll contribute with some rants. Hi, I'm Khan. I'm one of the emergency consultants. I'm Pramod. I'm back again for another month. We've got three absolutely fascinating papers for you today. Uh, the first is a paper by J.S. Lemkis et al. Uh, coronary angiography after cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation. We've got another paper by S. Shupke et al. Ticagrelor or Prasugrel in patients with acute coronary syndromes. And our third paper looks at a new electrocardiographic pattern indicating inferior myocardial infarction. And this is a paper out of Turkey by Aslanja et al. We'll kick off today with a paper about coronary angiography after cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation. And I'll ask Aisha to take that away for us. Thanks, Kit. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me and giving me the opportunity to discuss this study. Uh, this article describes the results of the COAC trial, uh, which, uh, as mentioned, is titled Coronary Angiography After Cardiac Arrest Without ST Segment Elevation. And it was performed by a group in Amsterdam University Medical Centre in the Netherlands and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April 2019. So as we all know, ischemic coronary disease is the major cause of cardiac arrest and the role of PCI after successful resuscitation in patients with no ST elevation has been debated. Um, so this was an investigator-initiated, randomised, open-label, multi-centre trial. 552 patients who had had cardiac arrest without signs of ST elevation uh, were randomly assigned to undergo immediate coronary angiography or delayed coronary angiography until after neurological recovery, and all patients underwent PCI if indicated. The inclusion criteria for the study were adults greater than 18 years of age having an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with an initial shockable rhythm, VF or VT, uh, and they had to be unconscious with a GCS of less than 8 after a return of spontaneous circulation and without any STEMI on ECG. Patients were excluded if they obviously had signs of a STEMI on ECG in the emergency department, had any signs of cardiogenic shock or an obvious uh, non-coronary cause of the arrest. Immediate angiography was defined uh, as angiography performed within two hours after randomisation, whereas delayed angiography was angiography performed after neurological recovery. And in general, this was after discharge from ICU. The primary endpoint was 90-day mortality and the secondary endpoints included survival at 90 days with good cerebral performance, uh, myocardial injury, duration of mechanical ventilation, duration of catecholamine support, 
major bleeding, occurrence of acute kidney injury, need for renal replacement therapy, time to target temperature and neurological status at discharge from the ICU. In terms of treatment, the choice of anticoagulant and revascularization was left to the discretion of the treating physician, although it was recommended that all uh, coronary lesions suspected of being unstable be treated, and the unstable lesion was defined as a, at least 70% stenosis, as well as other characteristics, including plaque disruption, irregularity, dissection, haziness, or a thrombus. In patients with multivessel disease, the revascularization strategy of PCI versus coronary artery bypass was determined by the syntax score, which is a score of coronary anatomical complexity. And if a cabbage was decided on in the immediate angiography group, this would be deferred until after neurological recovery. The follow-up data uh, were obtained by means of a telephone interview conducted at 90 days after randomization with the patient or family member or from the general practitioner. So in terms of the results, as mentioned, 552 patients were enrolled and this was from 19 centres in the Netherlands between January 2015 to July 2018. 538 patients had uh, data available for assessment. The mean age was 65 plus minus uh, 12.6 years and 79% of the patients were male. Uh, in terms of the other characteristics, so coronary angiography was performed 97% in the immediate angiography group and 65% in the delayed angiography group. And acute thrombotic occlusion was found in 3.4% of the immediate angiography group and 7.6% in the delayed angiography group. PCI was performed in 33% and 24% respectively. And cabbage was performed in 6% and 8.7% respectively. More than 90% of patients were treated with targeted temperature management and mechanical ventilation. And the medium time to target temperature was longer than five, uh, or was longer in the immediate angiography group, so 5.4 hours and 4.7 hours in the delayed angiography group. Uh, and patients who are assigned to a strategy of immediate angiography are more likely to be treated with a glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitor, whilst those assigned to delayed angiography were more likely to be treated with salicylates in a P2Y12 inhibitor. So in terms of the outcomes, at 90 days, 64.5% of patients in the immediate angiography group and 67.2% of patients in the delayed angiography group were alive and there was no difference in survival with an odds ratio of 0.89 and a 95% uh, confidence interval of 0.62 to 1.27. There was no significant differences between the groups uh, with the remaining secondary endpoints also, including survival with good cerebral performance. So the conclusion out of this study is that amongst patients who'd been successfully resuscitated after an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with no signs of STEMI, a strategy of immediate angiography was not found to be better than a strategy of delayed angiography with respect to overall survival at 90 days. It's really fascinating. I think sometimes as emergency physicians, if there's something that we can do, an intervention that we can do, we like to do it. Yeah. Um, and maybe this suggests that actually that's not always going to benefit the patient. Um, what, what, what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of this study? Yeah, so there are a number of strengths and limitations of this study. The strengths are that it's a very well-conducted multi-centre randomised trial. The randomisation was done very well with a web-based system. The sponsors of the trial had no actual role in the design, monitoring uh, or conduction of the trial um, and the coronary angiography and PCI procedures were evaluated by independent core laboratory. 
uh, and by personnel who are unaware of the uh, original treatment assignments. And more than 90% of patients were treated with um, uh, successful targeted temperature management. In terms of the limitations, so um, as I mentioned, the 90-day follow-up was obtained by means of telephone interview. And again, this may uh, be subject to misreporting and bias. Uh, it was a non-blinded study where the physicians knew the assigned group and this may have influenced subsequent treatment. Um, also, in terms of the patient population itself, acute unstable coronary lesions were only found in less than 20% of the total trial co cohort and coronary interventions were performed in less than 40% of patients. So the majority of the patients who had had a cardiac arrest with shock rhythm and underwent angiography didn't have any clinical significant coronary lesions. And this suggests that only a small fraction of the trial population would have been affected by the timing of coronary angiography or the performance of coronary angiography at all. Although these characteristics may be a reflection of the general cardiac arrest population, if the trial had potentially used more specific inclusion criteria, it may have enriched the cohort uh, with probable coronary artery disease and very different outcomes may have occurred. And then finally, although mortality is a nice hard endpoint, there is an argument that survival with good neurological outcome would have been a better primary outcome and potentially more clinically relevant. I'll open up questions to the floor. Aisha, I'm interested in your... Um overall feeling about this paper um, in terms of the value of immediate versus delayed uh, angiography, do you think that, because I, I understand that there's been some observational trials in the past that have to some extent contradicted the uh, result of this trial, do you feel that with what you've already alluded to in terms of the population potentially being slightly skewed, we've maybe just drowned out the signal um, that suggested there's, there's a benefit to in immediate intervention? Or do you think that maybe this is reflective of your own sort of experience of dealing with these patients clinically? So it is a very difficult question to answer. There were a number of observational studies and a meta-analysis of these observational studies published in 2017 that did show an effect of uh, immediate uh, angiography. Uh, however, it's difficult uh, to rely on those because of the observational nature and the, um, the possibility of selection bias. Uh, from our experience, often when we take these patients to the lab, we don't find uh, any sort of acute unstable coronary lesions, but that's just speaking from you know, our, my last three years working in the GATH lab. Um, it's, I think it really depends on the clinical nature of the patient. If the patient's stable, there's no ECG changes, uh, and I think that's um, you know, fair enough to delay their procedure and uh, get them good sort of vital organ support and temperature management and uh, try and improve sort of the neurological function. Um, however, if the patient is deteriorating in front of you or there are any signs uh, that it could be an acute ischemic episode, then a discussion with the on-call cardio uh, interventionalists would be um, sort of reasonable to see whether we should take these patients to the lab. Thanks. Yeah, and I think that that to an extent kind of reflects what actually happened in the trial as well. No, notably, there was the 38 patients in the non-intervention, non-immediate intervention group that crossed over 
not well, technically didn't still receive immediate intervention, but received to some degree expedited intervention because of a deterioration, which probably suggests that you know they required an intervention sooner than what they got. Um, but as 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 you're alluding to, perhaps there was some you know some clinical characteristic of those patients that that would have suggested that they would have benefited compared to the other majority of that delayed group. It was. Interesting as well that um, the final analysis was only powered to detect a 27% benefit, which mm. is, I mean, in terms of clinical interventions, quite massive um, considering the endpoint is mortality. Do you think that maybe, you know, we need sort of further research to delineate something a little bit more subtle? Yeah, I agree. So the power of the study was actually affected by the strikingly low mortality in the entire cohort. Uh, and this was... Uh, less than half the rate anticipated for the delayed angiography group in the trial. So this may reflect, you know, excellent pre-hospital and subsequent care and um, also be a consequence of exclusion of patients in shock but may have sort of diluted uh, the results in terms of trying to detect clinically meaningful uh, differences in outcome. I think further studies are necessary and there is actually a a trial that's undergoing uh, called the EMERGE trial uh, and that's emergency versus delayed coronary angio- angiography in survivors of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with no obvious uh, non-cardiac cause of arrest. And that's looking at 180-day survival rate, so a longer follow-up period. And uh, it is looking at survival with good cerebral performance as well. So it's a different uh, primary endpoint. So I think that will give us a bit more information. I guess from a practical point of view, would you like us to still involve the interventional cardiologist if we do get a patient like this in the resus bay where we've um, adequately resuscitated and then don't have a STEMI on the G during current practice? Yeah, I think if you're unsure, I, I would involve the interventional cardiologist. If you want to look for other causes, which is also reasonable of the cardiac arrest, then you could do that first and then involve the interventional cardiologist if uh, you can't find any other cause. But majority of the time, I think if they're stable, the interventional cardiologist will probably say to um, sort of watch and wait. Something else that I found particularly interesting in this paper uh, was that there was a, a, a difference to uh, in the median time to target temperature management um, uh, uh, with the, the group, the delayed angiography group receiving that more quickly. Uh, and I suppose to some degree that might echo um, the notion that all of these other things that surround a cardiac arrest, um, you know, normothermia, normoglycemia, all of these kind of things may be more important necessarily than pushing for intervention. Yeah, I think that that's a very important point. So there was a delay uh, in targeted temperature management uh, and the median difference was 0.7 hours. And this may have blurred the potential benefit of immediate angiography. Um, because the people who died died mostly of neurological causes and not uh, cardiac causes. So um, it's very important to consider this and to um, uh, basically uh, look at the cerebral neuroprotective benefit of induced hypothermia, although I'm not sure, like maybe from your experience uh, or sort of readings, in there, apparently there have been very different results in trials about uh, induced hypothermia. So I'm not sure if it would have had made a big difference in these two groups. Uh, but definitely um, uh, if the patient's stable and you know there's no sort of obvious cardiac cause uh, or ischemic cause, then we're very reasonable to prioritise uh, neurological recovery over uh, taking them to cath lab. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, the overall vibe for negative trials is just kind of disappointment. But I, I think in this... 
in this case, it's really reassuring to know that presence or absence of interventions, say, for example, if you're not working at a tertiary hospital with an on-call interventional service, it's not necessarily immediately impacting or obviously impacting the mortality at 30 days of these patients. Mm -hmm. And so it should really pivot our focus to providing A, good rotation, and B, focusing on supportive care um, as the mainstays of treatment. Also echoed by the fact that, I mean, just anecdotally from your experience, and certainly when I followed up patients that I've referred to you guys um, who have arrested, the disappointingly small number of stentable critical lesions that are noted on your notes also makes me reflect on the fact that, you know, it's, it's still the first principles, as uncool as they are, are still probably the best things to do. So, like, you know, effective CPR, early defib, public education really, honestly, will probably provide the most benefit for these patients. And then in the back end, providing good intensive care and good supportive care. To your point on targeted temperature management, I mean, it's not really induced hypothermia anymore. We're sort of just like, as long as they don't have a fever, we're all pretty happy. Mm. The difference of 0.7 an hour, like I highly doubt it. I don't think the data is so well fleshed out in those targeted temperature management studies to definitively say that a, the time to targeted temperature management with a difference of under an hour is going to be that significant and B, whether or not it's actually making an exponential difference to people. I think that's also changing over the last sort of half decade or so. Mm. So I found the study really encouraging, actually, mm -hmm. uh, even though it was negative. It's nice to know that you just do the basics right and you're probably doing most of the work that you should be doing anyway. That's at least my reading of it. Yeah, absolutely. I've also found it interesting that... Um, uh, one of the exclusion criteria for patients uh, in this study was was shock, um, and I guess that rules out quite a lot of the the cardiac arrest patients that maybe we'd we'd see. Could you comment on that at all? Yeah, so um, shock is very common uh, post uh, uh, sort of cardiac arrest and ROSC, as you uh, know already, and I think there's not there hasn't been many studies looking at. Um, uh, immediate coronary intervention in shock. But as we know, if with uh, myocardial infarction and cardiogenic shock, immediate uh, coronary angiography has been shown to have better outcomes. So I think in these patients, if you have them and you suspect it is cardiogenic shock, then uh, there should be a definite discussion with the um, interventionalist to take to the lab. And I guess, at least locally speaking, that's reflected in how our ECMO service functions. So that would be yeah. a prime example of hemodynamically unstable refractory cardiac arrest patients where the etiology... I mean, the data suggests that it's mostly ischemic, but still no one really knows. Those patients still have conference calls between the perfusionists and the interventionalists and the intensivists about sort of the next best step. Yep. So you should always consider it in patients that are very unstable. Just um, in terms you know, having finished nights, I'm just wondering about how I'm going to be managing this patient that we've just discussed at 2am. So the uh, post-ROSC shockable rhythm, but in cardiogenic shock. So there's been a couple of things that we've alluded to. I guess, you know, we've got a very established pathway of involving the interventional cardiologist. But in terms of um, the role for ECMO in this sort of a patient, would it be specifically in the situation where your basic inotropic and vasopressor support is not adequate to sort of stabilise them? Look, it's complicated. I mean, if you're talking on a pragmatic level, there's no ECMO service at 2 a.m., such as there is during 9 to 5, at least at this hospital at Westmead. Um, the next thing you have to remember is not to sort of go down the protocol hole. Like, the patient's still, and you still need to identify what the etiology is, right? So if you've got someone with refractory cardiogenic shock, the etiologies are numerous. You've got, obviously, your whole spectrum of toxic toxicology causes, but then you've obviously got structural issues, of, you know, massive ischemia causing... Uh, LV dysfunction being one of them, but also valve ruptures, 
and you've got various other things, all of which require different treatments. ECMO might be an option, uh, temporary stabilisation. The indications for that are complex and very patient-dependent, and so you need to have that conversation with the ECMO physician on um, in order to decide patient suitability. But you shouldn't let that distract you from trying to find what the etiology is. Um, so that might mean getting an echo if it's appropriate or you know doing further studies under that vein and not necessarily focusing on uh, perfusion therapies or reperfusion coronary ischemia as your primary diagnosis because it might not help you does that sort of answer your question yeah so i I guess what i'm taking from that is then that i'd be sort of appropriately working up the patient depending on the clinical situation um, and only thinking about sort of dragging the ECMO service in, like obviously ECPR is not going to happen, you know, after after hours, but, um, you know, assuming it's an alive patient that has a prospect of recovery, I would only really be involving ECMO or really hopefully at that point ICU would only really be involving ECMO if the patient is really heading down the rabbit hole. Yeah, also remember that the mortality benefits from ECMO, like it's difficult to ascertain, right? If you have someone who's got cardio, like cardiosuppression and cardiogenic shock secondary disseminated sepsis, ECMO's not going to help that patient. Um, and so you need to be very careful putting a hard and fast rule on that, I think, um, only because what will end up happening is you'll end up fixating on the decision about whether to e- give this patient ECMO or not and then neglect resuscitation and neglect diagnosis, both of which will actually improve the patient's mortality. That makes sense. Really fascinating. So if you had a couple of take-home points for our listeners, what would, what would they be from this paper? So this study's the best evidence to date uh, that shows that not, not all cardiac arrests, even those uh, with shockable rhythms, need cardiac catheterization. So the bottom line for us is that in patients who have had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST elevation uh, myocardial infarction, who have good evidence of cardiogenic shock or recurrent arrhythmias, a strategy of good supportive management without the need for immediate coronary intervention uh, would seem reasonable in most in- instances. However, depending on certain patient factors and a conversation with the interventional cardiologist, it may be reasonable to consider early angiography in a small uh, group of these patients, for example, if they have a good history of ischemic symptoms prior to the arrest uh, and in those with significant cardiac history. Fantastic, thanks. So next we have Caroline, who's also got an absolutely fascinating paper here. It's entitled, A New Electrocardiographic Pattern Indicating Inferior Myocardial Infarction by Emre Aslanger et al. I'd love you to discuss it for us. Sure. Thanks, Kit. Um, So, yeah, this study proposes a specific new ECG pattern, which is termed on life in the fast lane now as the Aslanger criteria, Um, which may be indicative of inferior MI, which does not fulfil our current STEMI definition, um, but which may nonetheless indicate the presence of an acute coronary occlusion that would potentially benefit from urgent reperfusion treatment. So that's kind of what they're looking at. Um, Just to quickly give us all some context, I guess, to start with. So currently in our Westmead ED, we follow the EDACS pathway for acute coronary syndromes. um, And the patients that are referred to the cath lab um, for acute PCI are those with ongoing chest pain. 
um, and ECG changes, including ST elevation of one millimetre in um, two or more contiguous leads. Um, and then there's obviously, I mean, I have a, a checklist in my head of other patterns to look for, like Wellens or De Winter's T-waves um, or, you know, the Scarbosa criteria. And I think for me, when I'm approaching a chest pain patient and I'm trying to make that initial acute decision of cath lab or no cath lab, I have a very set list of things that I run through before kind of pursuing the non-STEMI pathway. And I think what makes this study really interesting is it kind of prompts you to go, well, hang on, actually look at the patient, consider what else the ECG might be telling you and make it maybe a little bit less black and white. So that's kind of what how I looked at the paper. So before getting too far ahead of myself, let's go back to the paper itself. So it was un, it was a study undertaken at Dr. Siami Ursek Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery Training and Research Hospital in Istanbul, um, which is a large regional referral network for primary PCI. Um, and their hypothesis, which was based on previous clinical observation, was that there is a subgroup of inferior STEMI patients which have a pattern of ECG changes that cause them to be incorrectly categorised as non-STEMIs. Um, and they pre-specified the ECG pattern that they were interested in as an ECG that contained all three of the following. So any ST elevation in lead three, but obviously not in the other inferior leads, otherwise it would just be an inferior STEMI. ST depression in any of the leads of V4 to V6. Um, and finally, an ST segment in V1 that was higher than that of V2. Um, and then in order to test this hypothesis, uh, they performed a retrospective analysis from May 2017, where they took the first thousand patients with a diagnosis of non-STEMI from their database, and they labelled this as group one. Um, and then they formed two separate control groups with the same date range um, from their data, and that one of those groups was inferior STEMI. They labelled that group two, and uh, then another group of patients um, which were randomly selected from a computer-generated list um, who had been diagnosed as not having an MI but had come in with chest pain. So they had serial troponins that were negative and no serial changes on their ECGs. And then within these groups, they kind of looked at several things. So they looked at the ECGs first and foremost so that they could identify their primary in group of interest within that non-STEMI group. And then they looked at echoes between them, they looked at angiograms and they also considered the troponin rises with these patients to try and kind of correlate some implications um, for that new ECG pattern they were looking at. Firstly, they identified in the non-STEMI group uh, the uh, patients with the, uh, that met the Aslanger criteria with their ECGs. So they had two people reviewing ECGs and then they actually got one of those people to re-review them three months later to try and reduce the intra-observer variability for that. Um, and then once they had identified their special group within group one of the non-STEMIs that had that pre-specified ECG criteria, they compared it with the second group, which was the inferior STEMI group, to try and correlate um, some of the implications and outcomes for those patients. Each of the patients enrolled um, in the study also had a vital status that was then checked from the electronic national database to establish a one-year mortality. Um, and the baseline characteristics of all the enrolled patients were taken into consideration and their GRACE scores on admission were also calculated retrospectively. Um, and all of that was incorporated into the subsequent data analysis. Moving on to results. Um, so there were 1,000 patients enrolled into group one, the non-STEMI group. There were 404 patients in group two, which was the inferior STEMI group, and 1,000 were enrolled into group three, which was the chest pain without MI group. Um, of these, 34 patients in group one and eight patients in group two were excluded because of technically inadequate admission ECGs, um, which left 966 patients in group one, uh, 396 patients in group two, and 1,000 patients in group three. 
So down to the interesting part, uh, the pre-prescribed Aslanger ECG pattern was identified in 61 of 966 patients in that non-STEMI group, which was 6.3%. Five patients of the 1,000 patients in the non-MI chest pain group, um, which was 0.5% of that group, also had the Aslanger criteria in their um, ECG. They de- then did a whole lot of comparison. So they compared the Aslanger non-STEMI group um, with the rest of the non-STEMI group and they found that the Aslanger group had a higher troponin rise and higher infarct size. Um, they had higher frequency of identified angiographic culprit lesions and overall like the diagnosis of coronary occlusion um, was more common in that Aslanger group compared to the rest of the non-STEMI population. This Aslanger group also had a higher frequency of multivessel disease and higher in-hospital and one-year mortality than the rest of the non-STEMI group and that mortality um, outcome was actually similar to the inferior STEMI group data that they collected. Just in general, uh, when looking at this Aslanger group, they found that they had higher GRACE risk scores. Um, They tended to be older patients and they had a higher frequency of comorbidities. Um, So I guess kind of putting all of that together, they concluded that the Aslanger pattern um, was observed in 6.3% of non-STEMI patients and was found to be a predictor of larger infarct size and higher mortality. I guess from their data, they're suggesting that 13.3% of inferior MIs may present with this pattern and may be deprived of emergent revascularization because they're not classically the STEMI picture we look for when we're assessing these patients in the emergency department. This group of patients are, although classified as non-STEMI, and I know in my head I tend to think, well, the non-STEMI patients are not as high risk as the STEMI patients, Um, This data is actually suggesting that these patients have a higher baseline risk um, with multiple vessel disease and multiple comorbidities and they're actually potentially the patients that we in some respects need to be as worried about as our inferior STEMI patients. It's interesting that this pattern was also found in 0.5% of the control group. I guess that you raise a good point there in terms of like, so I'm happy to talk, I guess, about some of the weaknesses of this study um, and that might kind of prompt us to think about how we use this very limited information that we've got now in terms of how we practice. So, I mean, it's a retrospective study, which is never the best. Um, It's single centre. It's relatively small. They did acknowledge when they were kind of going through the discussion of what, how to interpret these findings that, you know, um, they've come up with one potential reason why this um, inferior STEMI might have these ECG changes, but there may be other reasons why the ECG had that cha- those changes and it may not be attributed to a true inferior MI, uh, if that makes sense. So they kind of postulated that, you know, if you've got an inferior STEMI, the ST vector is very much pointing downwards, so that's why you get your ST elevation in 2, 3 and AVF. Um, but in the context of these patients where there's multivessel disease, um, they suggested that there could also be, you know, subendocardial ST vectors pointing towards AVR or kind of even if the axis is slightly different, you might get a slightly more rightward vector, which then nulls lead to an AVF and kind of looks mostly at lead three. Um, so that was kind of their theory behind why these ECG changes may be the way they are. Um, but then... To your point, there's there's other reasons why that could be. I mean, they could have chronically multivessel disease that just gives them that pattern, um, like in the in group three, and it may not be 
because of the inferior MI. So they, they did actually address that as a potential limitation in their discussion. I think to me it just echoes the, the idea that, that actually the clinical picture is probably what, what matters most. You know, a patient with significant ongoing chest pain you know, should always be considered as a, someone with potentially problematic right? yeah and I mean I know that sounds like really common sense but I know that I've definitely fallen into the trap of going okay non-STEMI patients start the heparin walk yep. away um, and you know not uh, like some patients if you went back and asked them I reckon they would have pain and they they themselves think the treatment started and they're not aware that if they get worsening pain that's really important for them to relay that message yep. to us so I think it is you know good for us to realize that just because they're a non-STEMI patient doesn't mean they're still not very high risk and I think from now on, I'd probably be encouraging them to let us know if they get worsening pain in the ideal world as well, um, and kind of focusing a little bit more heavily on clinically the patient in front of me. I might ask, actually, uh, some of the, the cardiologists in the room, um, are these the kind of patients that you want to know about? Are these the kind of patients that you'd take to lab? Yeah, uh, thanks, Kit. So certainly I think these are uh, important patients to identify and uh, I actually wanted to comment on, just from our experience in the cath lab, um, in this study they found that the majority of lesions were in the left circumflex in this particular group with these uh, ECG changes. And often uh, what we find with uh, left circumflex occlusions is they can have very minimal ECG signs, sometimes nothing, sometimes very sort of seaway flattening or uh, things like that. Um, so this uh, ECG pattern may help sift out those patients that are having uh, circ occlusion. But again, it would really depend on the clinical picture uh, and we w certainly would like to know if they're having ongoing pain because they're, they're people would definitely take to the lab. And I think just in general with uh, all non-STEMIs, it's very important, as Caroline said, to keep checking up on the patients to make sure that you know, they're not having ongoing pain even while they're on the heparin uh, because then we'd potentially also take those to the lab as well. The other thing I found interesting with the pattern uh, that they've described is that often when we're differentiating like actual inferior STEMIs, uh, we find that the circ, uh, the lead 2 is greater than lead 3, <laughs> ST elevation, compared to the RCA, which is the opposite way around. Whereas here they've basically said it's an isolated ST elevation in the lead 3. So I'm not sure what the reason for that is. It could be sort of a shift in vector size of the left circumflex um, but yeah like I said clinically it uh, really depends on the patient uh, and that would determine whether we take them to the lab or not. Can I ask Aisha and Samia just first principles ignoring let's just say a few months ago before this paper was published you would have seen this ECG morphology you know that they published in the paper if you just saw that ECG in the context of patient who had typical chest pain would that be a patient who you would have um wanted to potentially ex have an expedited angiogram because when my first impression looking at this ECG on life in the fast lane was there's ST elevation, there's reciprocal changes um, and, you know, there's in, in the right clinical context that that's very concerning. So I do agree with you, Shreyas. Like, um, I think the main thing that you said actually was just the clinical presentation here. So a patient with ongoing chest pain. So regardless of their, and without any other cause. So regardless of their ECG, I think the majority of people would discuss with the interventionalist on call. Um, and then, of course, correlating it with this very ischemic looking ECG, I agree with you. It's just reassuring to know that first principles is all I have to remember. I think, I think like, there's a lot of lot of ECG changes and then there's a lot of ECGs that you see on a shift and often it's like a one-line story 
and just regurgitated from triage. So, yeah, it is really all about circling back, following up, making sure serial ECGs are done on patients who we've either diagnosed as, you know, moderate-risk chest pains or low-risk chest pains that we're stuck in our short stay or ones who are under cardiology for lookup. I think that's, like, the real take-home message for me rather than going away and memorising this ECG pattern um, and then focusing on that again. I think you'll still continue to make the same errors that you have made up until now if that's what you take away from this paper. I mean, in actual fact, what you should probably take away is, well, clinically speaking, if you've got someone who's got a high pretest probability of having ischemic-sounding chest pain, along with an ECG that makes you concerned, be it not necessarily conforming to the protocolized STEMI pathway, then regardless of what's up and what's down in terms of the ST segments, you should probably be escalating that to the cardiologists so they can make the decision. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that's back end of how many of these ECG changes are actually got stentable lesions, what the outcomes for these patients are. It's us communicating our concern to them. Yeah, it actually makes me reflect on very interesting case um, from my night shift that I've just finished who had not quite this criteria but a fairly sort of morphologically similar ECG on presentation with very concerning um, sort of clinical story Um, and unlike many of the chest pains that come through our department that unfortunately because of access block and other issues tend to get parked in the corner and um, you know often have their serial ECG four hours later this gentleman, we actually, because of the situation, we actually had the opportunity of reassessing his ECG at each occasion when his pain reoccurred or pain worsened. And it was fascinating to watch his ST segments go down and, and then back up and then down and then back up as his pain got worse and better and worse and better. So I, I think that's definitely a very important take home you know, for, for us for the future for this paper. Um, I was interested in what you guys were saying about the circumflex lesions. Um, my understanding of sort of circumflex in terms of the electrophysiology was that it tends to um, cause high lateral ischemia and so it's more AVL that you would be interested in. And so it's almost kind of the opposite vector that we're looking at on this pattern um, I was wondering what, what your thoughts are on that. Is it just sort of proximal lesions might be high lateral and the more distal lesions might be sort of the other other aspect of the heart? Is that be the explanation? So it really depends on the dominance of the, um, whether it's a left dominant system or right dominant system. If the circ is dominant, then you'll get inferior changes as well. Uh, depending on how high, as you said, the occlusion is, uh, if it's quite high, then you'll get lateral changes. If it's quite distal and it's... Uh, uh, basically blocking off the PDA that comes off the circumflex, then uh, you'll get inferior changes as well. Uh, but again, you know, there the sometimes you have co-dominance and sometimes you have a small dominant circumflex. So uh, this can affect, uh, you know, the typical ECG ch- changes that we see. Uh, and uh, thus we come to this paper where we have a very sort of different um, typical uh, Fourier uh, ST STEMI here. That's a clinical question. Would you be also concerned about the complications that you would otherwise see in a proper inferior STEMI? So, you know, with the right ventricle involvement and the use of nitrates in this particular pattern? Uh, It's hard to know. I guess it would depend on the clinical state of the patient, what their blood pressure is at the time. Uh, If we're suspecting the inferior involvement, which it sounds like uh, that's what it's pointing to, then I probably would avoid nitrates. uh, unless they're obviously very hypertensive uh, and focus mainly on pain management and antiplatelets, uh, heparin infusion. Uh, but yeah, again, it will be a case-by-case case, uh, sort of decision. I think just going back to the paper, it's really interesting to think about chicken versus egg in terms of this uh, sort of described pattern. It was interesting that all of the patients that, like I guess the very small subgroup of non-STEMIs that, that have had this pattern were 
in so many different characteristics, sicker, they were older, they had more risks, more prevalence of almost all of the different risk factors, they had more prevalence of pre-existing ischemic heart disease as well. I wonder, is it that these sort of baseline characteristics, you know, predispose those particular patients to having a, um, a worse sort of mortality outcome or, you know, just worse outcomes in general? You know, alternatively, in, and potentially more usefully, was it that people with this sort of sicker profile tend to have less specific ECG, um, which which doesn't localize as easily compared to the person who's having their first ever ischemic episode, and so has a very obvious territory. So, just based off what the paper said about that, um, I can say that um, they did uh, Cox regression um, to kind of determine the statistical significance of that comparison with mortality. And when they corrected for the GRACE risk score, that mortality significance actually went away. Um, So I think you do raise a good point there in that these patients are generally sicker. And I'd say you definitely need to take this study and, you know, do a much larger study to really determine the true significance of that. I was just having a conversation about this paper with um, one of the other consultants uh, a couple of hours ago and the interesting point was that the comparison isn't quite fair because the inferior STEMI patient is having their you know having very aggressive management they're going to be in a resource bay they're going to have the pads on they're going to have very immediate um, antiplatelets and and heparin infusions and you know potential you know other and we'll be going straight to the lab whereas um, these patients the time for the angiogram was significantly delayed compared to what the usual STEMI protocol would be, and yet the outcomes were equivalent. So based on that, I don't think that the conclusion that these patients are another STEMI mimic is quite valid. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All in all, really interesting article, but but maybe we could say that there's some some further research to be done. Definitely. Any take-home points from that, Caroline? Oh, I mean, I feel like it's been really well summarised by everyone around the table, so uh, I won't bang on for too much longer. Um, but I guess, I, similar to what Pramod said earlier, I'd say the take-home points are really to look at the patient in front of you. Um, and obviously we need somewhere to start with in terms of categorising our STEMI and non-STEMI patients, but to you know, not fall into the trap of just sitting with that and to you know, review the patient regularly and really consider that there could be more to it than just STEMI, non-STEMI. Just for our listeners, we'll um, put a, a copy of the Aslanger pattern um, up on the show notes. It's uh, inferior ST elevation isolated to lead three, concomitant ST depression in any of V4 to V6 with a positive, terminally positive T wave, um, ST segment uh, in V1 greater than V2. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you. with that we move on to our third paper so welcome Samia 
we have a paper here on Ticagrelor or Prasugrel in patients with acute coronary syndromes from Germany by Schupke et al. Thank you. Thanks, Kit. And thanks, guys, for inviting me to speak in your podcast. Um, so I'll be presenting an article that actually made a really big impact um, in the ESC in 2019. So it's a paper on Ticagrelor versus Prasugrel in patients with acute coronary syndromes published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September 2019. So as we all know, dual antiplatelet therapy is the standard of care for all patients who present with acute coronary syndromes. And Prasugrel and Ticagrelor have consistently proven to be more beneficial in preventing ischemia than clopidogrel in previous studies. So this study basically compared the two in acute coronary syndromes and also had a difference in the administration of the drugs. So ticagrelor usually it is administered before the diagnostic angiogram and prasugrel is after the coronary anatomy has been assessed by diagnostic angiography. So this is a multi-center randomized open label trial. Um, the trial population were all patients who were hospitalised for an acute coronary syndrome and the decision was made for invasive evaluation with coronary angiography. All patients who met all the inclusion criteria were basically randomised to prasugrel or ticagrelor in a randomization ratio of one-to-one. Exclusion criteria for the trial included essentially exclusion related to ticagrelor or prasugrel, so allergy, history of stroke, TIA or intracranial bleeding, history of bradycardia, um, history of any intracranial pathology such as neoplasms or AVMs or aneurysm, high risk of bleeding, thrombolysis, thrombocytopenia, known anemia and other risks of high-risk bleeding. So the trial protocol involved a ticagrelor loading dose of 180 milligrams and then continuation at maintenance dose of 90 milligrams twice a day. And patients who were as, um, assigned to ticagrelor received the loading dose as soon as possible after randomization. Prasugrel is a loading dose of 60 milligrams and continuing maintenance dose of 10 milligrams once a day. And they reduced a to a maintenance dose of 5 milligrams daily for those who are aged over 75 or had a body weight less than 60 kilograms. So patients who had acute coronary syndrome without ST segment elevation were administered a loading dose of prasugrel after the diagnostic angiography, but still before percutaneous coronary intervention. So the primary endpoint of this study was the composite of death, MI or stroke at one year. Secondary endpoints included the incidence of bleeding using the BART criteria, so type 1 and 2, which is more minor bleeding, and versus type 3, 4 or 5, which is higher risk, which is more severe bleeding. And also included a secondary endpoint of definitive or probable stent thrombosis at one year. Follow-up was scheduled at 30 days, 6 months and 12 months, all over the phone. Results of the studies, so from the patients were collected from September 2013 to February 2018 with a total of 4,018 patients across Germany and Italy. The population in both Ticagrelor and Prasugrel group were relatively matched. So in total, they each had about 2,000 patients with 40% STEMI and 46% NSTEMIs and 12% with unstable angina. In patients presenting with STEMI, the interval from symptom onset to randomization was approximately three hours in the Ticagrelor group and three hours in the Prasugrel group as well. And 84% of the patients actually underwent PCI and 2% ended up having bypass. Tyrofiban was used in 12.3% of the patients who underwent PCI. In terms of adherence, at the one-year follow-up, 15% of patients discontinued Ticagrelor and 12% discontinued Prasugrel. The median interval from randomization to discontinuation of the drug after discharge was 84 days in the Ticagrelor group and 109 days in the Prasugrel group. There was no significant difference in the baseline characteristics between patients with complete follow-up and those with incomplete follow-up. So in terms of the results, um, the composite endpoint of death from any cause, MI or stroke at one year after randomization occurred in 9% of patients in the Ticagrelor group and 7% of um, the population in the Prasugrel group. 
when divided, the rate of death from any cause at one year was 4.5% in the Ticagrelor group and 3.7% in the Prasicor group. The incidence of MI was approximately 5% in the Ticagrelor group and 3% in the Prasicor group. And stroke was 1.1% in the Ticagrelor group and 1% in the Prasicor group. Uh, the incidence of definitive or probable stent thrombosis was 1.3% in the Ticagrelor group and 1% in the Prasicor group. In terms of the adverse um, outcome of bleeding, High-risk bleeding was seen in 5.4% of patients in the Ticagrelor group and 4.8% in the Prasicor group. Bark type 1 or 2 bleeding was reported as 13.8% in the Ticagrelor group and 15.1% in the Prasicor group. So there was fewer um, total MIs in the Prasicor group than in the Ticagrelor group. The um, fewer ischemic events with the Prasicor did not occur at the expense of an increased risk of bleeding. Um, the results were consistent, according to them, in the whole pre- um, spectrum of presentation of acute coronary syndromes. So in summary, essentially this paper demonstrates in patients who presented with acute coronary syndromes, the composite endpoint of death MIO stroke was significantly lower in the Prasicor group than the Ticagrelor group without a significant increase in major bleeding in the Prasicor group. Thanks, Samia. So what, what do you think are the strengths and limitations of this paper? Um, so I think the main strengths are that it is a randomised control trial and both of the populations are very matched pretty well. Main limitations, I think, of course, it's open label and um, most of the follow-up was done by a telephone instead of face-to-face. And also there was a minor discrepancy, like how they calculated the bleeding risks in the Ticagro law versus the Prasicor group. I think what, one of the things that, that kind of scared me a little bit about this paper was the... the big section at the bottom that has lots and lots of conflict of interests. Is this something that's that's normal for papers in cardiology? We don't tend to see much of that in ED land. Yeah, I can understand how that would be quite uncomfortable for other areas of medicine. Um, the thing is, in cardiology, because of our large-scale multi-centre trials, the majority of our trials, especially the ones that get into the New England Journal or the practice-changing things, are actually um, funded by drug companies. So it's the same with our um, NOACs and the same with our devices as well. So I suppose we're relatively used to that conflict of interest. How do you guys navigate that in terms of your interpretation of results? Is that something that you sort of actively consider, particularly when maybe the industry sponsor tends to come out as the winner in terms of the outcome of the trial? Or is it something where as long as maybe certain sort of processes are met, then satisfied and you move on? I suppose one of the things we're lucky in is that there's always usually a competitor. So, um, for example, with the NOACs, all of the different companies will do similar studies. Um, I think just comparing and contrasting between those um, different companies helps us um, kind of navigate the conflict of interest. Sometimes we don't really have a choice. This trial, for example, actually compared Ticagrelor and Prasagrel and had um, with the conflict of interest parties uh, where they had members from both sides, um, from both companies. So I think it's one of the rarer trials. Usually they'll compare it against a generic brand. So evidently Prasagrel won out in, in this trial. Um, is there a reason that you might use one agent over the, over another uh, outside of just this this kind of evidence? Is there, for instance, more effective in patients with renal failure or is there any difference between them in that regard? So at the moment, I suppose one of the biggest determinants of the second antiplatelet that you pick is availability. Prazagrel currently is not available in the Australian market and that's because of essentially the Australian market's not as profitable as the rest of the world. 
unfortunately, and also there's been some delays with COVID. But Prez Girl has just um, come back into the market and currently is available at Westmead, but as an SAS for neurosurgery patients. So it seems that maybe the generic brands will um, allow us to use Prez Girl later in the year for our cardiology patients. Um, in terms of like medical reasons and picking antiplatelet therapy, I think a general rule of thumb is just assessing the bleeding risk of the patient. So if patients are high risk of bleeding over the age of 70, then you'd probably be safer to go with clopidogrel. And then you just have the contraindications to ticagrelor, which are essentially um, high degrees of conduction block and then high risk of bleeding. Those are the usual things that you look at. With prasugrel as well, you um, look at the history of stroke because that increases your risk of intracranial bleeding as well. So essentially, it's mainly just looking at the contraindications in terms of deciding which antiplatelet therapy to use. Um, but if there's a patient, a young person who comes in with a non-STEMI, it's probably better just to give them ticagrelor because the um, anti-ischemia effects are a lot higher. It's interesting as well that this paper has compared um, uh, different kind of treatment protocols. So ticagrelor um, is given prior to the angiogram in this paper, whereas prasugrel is given after um, the angiogram. But why is that? Yeah, so that's actually... Um, this is only in the non-STEMI population, not the STEMI population. So in the STEMI population, both groups of patients received the um, loading dose earlier. So the reason for that in the non-STEMI population is the activation of the second antiplatelet, which is extremely important for when we put in stents. So basically, um, prazogrel is given at the time of diagnostic, uh, after the um, coronary anatomy is known, because there was no significant benefit in terms of ischemia by giving it earlier. And giving it earlier, um, of course, increases the risk of bleeding, whereas ticagrelor takes longer to take effect. If we don't have dual antiplatelets on board before we put in a stent, the risk of stent thrombosis is extremely high. So that's sometimes also why we have to use um, the glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitors, which, of course, also increase your risk of, risk of bleeding, especially after an invasive procedure like an angiogram. So um, that is the main reason. I think after spending years obsessing over the outcomes of patients by following them up and seeing how decisions in the ED affect patient sort of flow through the hospital. I think it was really demystifying to like see what, what your guys' thought processes are because I think from a pers perspective of an ED clinician, it's hard to participate in a conversation with a cardiologist on the phone. You don't actually know what they're looking for or what the differences are between the reasons to prescribe ticagrelor versus clopidogrel versus prasugrel. If it's easy for us to then obtain the information faster if we can anticipate the questions you guys are seeking to answer in your own heads about making that decision. And so for that reason alone, I found this conversation in the paper like really, really enlightening. Um, and so I guess then it sort of comes down to, so you sort of re referenced back that there's no prasugrel currently around and maybe in the emerging future, sort of medium term, that will sort of start up again um, as being an available formulation. In terms of making a decision empirically if, if you didn't weren't able to get in touch with a cardiologist which you know may or may not be the case depending on where people work is there a safe option between the three if you didn't know or would it just be based off what you've said already in regards to those obvious uh, excluding those obvious red flags would be that is there a preferred agent now or still not yeah so the preferred agent at the moment with prasugrel not being available would probably be ticagrelor unless there's a high risk of bleeding sure. generally speaking and also um the other thing to watch out for is giving a, deciding whether or not to give a second antiplatelet agent. So making sure that there's no, well, as much as you can, making sure that there's no risk of um, left main disease or triple vessel disease or anything in the ECG or history to suggest that, in which case it may delay um, bypass.
coronary artery bypass coronary. That's just for perioperative purposes. Correct, yeah, only for perioperative purposes. So if you had to give a couple of takeaway messages to our ED listeners from this paper, what would they be? So I think the main take-home message is that um, when Prazogrel is available on the market again, on the Australian market again, it should be prescribed over ticagrelor in our non-STEMI patients. And essentially the second um, take-home message will probably be essentially just when prescribing dual antiplatelet therapy, the biggest thing to watch out for are the contraindications, so the high risk of bleeding and using that to guide your clinical decision. Thanks, really enlightening. think that we can wrap this up kit before we hear your quirky fact of the month this is kit's corner We've been speaking of eponyms um, with uh, Aslanja Patton, and I learned something uh, interesting this week. There is a Hungarian mathematician by the name of Erdos uh, who works on collaborative distance, so kind of six degrees of separation. And there's this thing called an Erdos number, which is essentially how many connections you need before you published a paper of, uh, effectively with uh, Erdos. So if you published a paper with someone that's published a paper with Erdos, you've got an Erdos number of two. There's also such a thing as the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, which is how many links you need before you've been in a film with Kevin Bacon. Now, that's your Bacon number. Recently, there's been such a thing as an Erdos Bacon number that's been developed, and this is really quite specific for mathematicians with bit parts in films. The lowest Erdos Bacon number is three, and I'm determined to publish a paper with Erdos and work with Kevin Bacon. Wow. So many good papers. Thanks ever so much, guys. And uh, especially to our our, uh, guest uh, presenters, uh, Aisha and Samia, and also to Khan, our uh, guest staff specialist on today. Please don't forget, if there's anything that you'd like to email in with, we'd love your questions. Our email is westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. See you next time. Please show me the way, baby, to your heart.